Hello, hello, and welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Bianca. And I'm Gianna. Well, Bianca, we've got a few days until Valentine's Day. Do you have any plans? Well, first and foremost, I'll be thoroughly prepared to talk with my hot date about all things Valentine's. I think hopefully this episode can give you all a little knowledge for any Val or Galentine's dates you have this year. Ooh, that's a very good point, Bianca. In today's episode, we're getting you ready for that Galentine's Day happy hour with a lot of fun facts about the visuals surrounding this history. And if you're getting in the mood for love, hopefully you'll be able to spit some mean art facts during your dinner portion of the evening. This week, we'll be talking you through the historic visuals of love, from Cupid cupping his mother's breast to the kitsch of candy hearts. Bianca, are you ready to fall in love with some art? Oh, absolutely. As usual, my dear, we have a lot to cover today. But before we start, we wanted to announce that APT is hosting a Thirsty Thursday happy hour. Yay! On February 25th at 6 p.m. Central Time. Now we know that Zoom happy hours are a thing of COVID days gone by, but we were chatting with a bunch of different tartlets and we thought we needed a way to get together and talk about some cool stuff. So the link for this can be found on our Facebook page as an event, but we'll also put the Zoom link in our bio across our social media so you can find it there as well. I'm so excited. I can't wait to talk to some of the art pop tarts. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it such good news to start off the episode with but Bianca I just need to get into it Dan Levy on SNL Miley's pregame tailgate performance and the weekend's halftime show at the Super Bowl (laughs) and the Golden Globe noms and for art news I thought it would be fun to talk about some of the Super Bowl commercials as well so thoughts and notions salutations give me (laughs) well okay I watched Dan's SNL, and when I saw he was announced as the host, I was really excited for him. I just love him. I think he's so cute and sweet. Obviously, you guys know this. We talk about him and Schitt's Creek all the time. But I was really, really excited for him. I think he's such a good, I don't want to say up-and-coming creative, but he. I think he's going to be that next prominent creative in the industry. And so I think this was a really big moment for him. The show itself wasn't the best his skits didn't really hit for me but it was it was cute I guess yeah no I agree I really like the SNL ad skits so I thought the Zillow one was hilarious the Zillow one was the best yeah so that was a good one but let's transition to the Golden Globes Bianca take us through this year's nominations As we've said on this show before, I love award shows and I know they're silly and they don't really carry the weight that we think is placed on them all the time. But nevertheless, I have some things to say about the Golden Globes. (laughs) So this will be the 78th Golden Globes and it will take place on February 28th on NBC. The event will once again be hosted by Tina Fey and Amy Poehler returning for their fourth time. 
I keep getting promising young woman and pieces of a woman very much confused. And I need to watch both of them, both of which are up for awards. I'm really disappointed also in the musical category, which I most often am because I just think that we need more musicals every season. And because it's the Golden Globes, it's combined with comedy. So it's best they have best television show and best picture in a musical or comedy which i just think is such a disgrace also i'm a little peeved that hamilton because it's on disney plus is up for best picture in that category and gianna i just want to know your thoughts about that You know, I keep saying this, but I was just as happy as the rest of us that Hamilton was put on Disney+. Plus. You know, that's great. Give us some content during this time. Love to see it. Obviously, a fantastic production. My issue is, Bianca, what you pointed out, that musicals and comedies are just lumped in the same category. It's just weird. I don't know. Like, (laughs) Hamilton is a play. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I I think I'm just annoyed because I think that they should make more musicals, not just take musicals from Broadway and then nominate. I'm not No, no, that's it. The version on Disney Plus is beautiful, and you get to see so many close-ups that a lot of people would be able to afford to go see in person and to see it with that cast. Yeah, it's just more like the fact that there's like not enough. So it's like, okay, we'll just throw Hamilton on here because that was the thing that happened this year. I just, and it's not like I feel like we need to put Hamilton to rest. Please still enjoy it. And it's like so Mm -hmm. important. I hear you. Of course, the probably biggest news coming out of the Golden Globe nominations is that for the first time, three women are nominated in the Best Director of a Motion Picture category. So we have Emerald Fennell for Promising Young Woman, Chloe Zhao for Nomadland, and Regina King for One Night in Miami. And then we have two other men uh, in the category as well. So (laughs) (laughs) you can find them, I promise. So that's that's good and exciting. Uh, there are also tons of other problems with nominations as well. But I guess three women in the director's category is something to be excited about. So Gianna, my other bone to pick is I just, I can't. I am upset, very upset. We also have to talk about in the television, musical, or comedy category, which does feature Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist and Schitt's Creek as well, amongst those two is also Emily in Paris. And I'm sorry, but is this a joke? Like, I think it might be. And here's the thing. I'm not trying to hate on Darren Star. I'm not trying to hate on Lily Collins. Lily Collins is nominated for Best Actress in a show that epitomizes American stupidity and ignorance in a foreign country. I just, I'm not happy about it. I did watch that show visually. It's very pretty. It's very bright. It's yes. sharp. It's colorful. Very colorful. Very um, like Darren Star, which I which I Yeah, like. which I like. But so were a lot of things this year so was the prom so was uh palm spring so was a zoe's extraordinary playlist um Mm -hmm. oh my god bianca it is just so cringy like don't even just don't bother if you if you know you know i looked it up which episode i actually stopped watching 
Lily Collins hooks up with her friend's 17-year-old brother. And it's supposed to be this, like, really funny thing that, like, she got her friend's brothers, like, mixed up. It is no. That's not okay. No. Like, that's not funny, man. That's just, like, really fucked up. But not to mention that even before we don't even know that he's 17, that is hands down the cringiest sex scene I have ever witnessed in my life. Mm -hmm. I have so many thoughts on this show. And as someone who just, look, I know that there are a ton of other things to be upset about with celebrity culture and TV shows and Golden Globe nominations in general. I get it. But I have a lot of thoughts about Emily in Paris. So maybe we can talk about that at our happy hour. I don't know. Okay, so before we get into art news, let's talk about Miley's and The Weeknd's performances for the 2021 Super Bowl. Both artists have been working on building up their aesthetics for their performances for quite some time. Miley, with the release of Plastic Hearts, has taken to social media especially and has partnered with TikTok for this performance specifically. So what did you think, Bianca? Well, it's Miley, and I was really excited to see her on stage. We haven't seen her on stage in so long, it feels like. The only thing that I didn't like was watching the performance on TikTok. I know that TikTok is becoming this very multimedia platform. I understand that, but I don't want to watch a 90-minute performance holding my phone up. That's just not something that... I want to do so I started watching it I watched her do the first song or two when she came out it was cute she looked really cute but then I just had to give up because I wasn't going to sit there on Super Bowl day and just sit and hold my phone I just I'm not the type of person that does that so I was able to catch some of the performances on TV which I really liked so I saw her and Billy Idol and her and Joan Jett I liked it. I think it's cute. I just, I'm not really here for it being exclusively on TikTok because I do want to watch it, but I'm not going to watch that. Yeah, I know what you mean. It was hard. And also I was a little upset that I, you know, was like, oh, it starts at this time, but then it actually didn't start an hour after that. And it was just dumb sports content. That is just not for me. But I understand why they did it. And it was interesting to see how they incorporated TikTok in a very e-news kind of format so Mm -hmm. it was interesting to witness perhaps but yeah I agree it was a lot to just stare and look at my phone for that amount of time but I just think she's such a wonderful performer and I just love Mm -hmm. this album for her and this aesthetic for her so it was good I was I was happy to see her she looked great she sounded great So The Weeknd released his album After Hours in March of 2020 and has implemented visual and performative aspects not only in the aesthetics of his album and through the music videos, but also through live performances. The visuals, especially related to his physical appearance, have progressed in tandem with one another, which has been like the interesting thing of this whole phase in this specific uh, moment in his career. We saw the start of his physical transformation at the 2020 VMAs with a bit of FX makeup to create kind of bruising around the eyes and the nose and a small bandage around the nose as well. Progressing to award shows in November, he wore bandages pretty much over his entire face, looking like he had just underwent some kind of major surgery, perhaps. 
with the debut of his music video for Save Your Tears, his face was entirely covered in prosthetics, alluding to this idea that he had plastic surgery to make himself more appealing. Of course, this is dramatized and the concept hyper-realized through the exaggerated features. So, Bianca, so what did you think about The weekend's halftime performance? It just wasn't really for me. I've, I'm not really a weekend fan, and that's not to say that he doesn't have a good voice, that he's not talented. I didn't think that he would be a great performer. I don't typically think of The weekend as that Super Bowl-level entertainer where you are putting on a theater production. I don't really get this whole shtick with the plastic surgery, and maybe that's just because I'm not really in his fandom, but I I think that I'm maybe a little sensitive to the idea of plastic surgery because it's very, it can be a very personal experience, and it's it's not always a bad thing, and I, I do think that it's something that relates so heavily to gendered issues and again I, I'm not sure of of the entirety of the narrative that he's working with in that but I, from my perspective as it stands I don't love that angle I wasn't sure if it was like if it was a COVID performance and that people were socially distanced and the mask thing kind of worked for his shtick with the covering of the face so I wasn't sure if it was meant to be a COVID performance or if it just wasn't an entertaining performance. Also, I didn't think the sound quality was great. Something was up with the sound mixing because it was really hard to hear him over his music, I thought, which made it just that less impressive, I guess, because I couldn't really hear him. Yeah, I'm glad you actually mentioned that because I, I was having a hard time hearing his voice versus kind of the electronic voice versus the Mm -hmm. whole elaborate you know just the music behind it all so there were some things that I did like about it I think I was more a fan of the part in the beginning where it was kind of this mini stage up at the top Mm. of the stadium rather than on the field the concept Mm -hmm. behind the whole plastic surgery angle as I know it is more this idea of masking which I think is interesting to use Mm -hmm. in a COVID times perspective and using this idea of you know masking hiding your real emotions about things to like please Uh the masses and I do understand all of that but I hear what you're saying about specifically taking that plastic surgery approach Um, Mm -hmm. and there are other ways that he incorporated the idea of like masks into the performance Mm -hmm. and throughout the aesthetics of this album uh but specifically for him it was this whole idea of you know facial reconstruction which was interesting yeah but yeah I don't know as Super Bowl halftime shows go was it my ultimate favorite no and I do think I like the weekend's music perhaps a bit more than you do Bianca yeah you know it was fine it was fine. I think that there's also a weird, it's a weird thing to be watching the Super Bowl during this time. And maybe that also has a little bit to do with just kind of like the meh factor of yeah. it all. But speaking of that, should we get into art news, which is more about the Super Bowl? But I'm excited to kind of hear your thoughts on the rest of the evening as far as aesthetics go. Mm, yes, good point. So on that note, let's get into some art news. 
Clearly, the Super Bowl has a huge impact on pop culture because it is literally this all-encompassing American cultural performance from the actual sports ball part of it all to the musical performances of it all to the actual commercials. We live for these commercials every year because of these witty pop culture references and the significance of these short productions. So this art news segment won't be anything without a bit of historical background. And let me tell you, this is going to be a bit trippy, at least I thought it was. So we are taking it all the way back to 1979, when no surprise Coca-Cola aired its famous Mean Joe Green commercial for the 14th Super Bowl. The creative cleverness caught the attention of the commercial world. Then going into 1984, when Apple really helped to start this creative ad trend amongst advertisers because of the massive media attention it received when it aired at the Super Bowl, introducing the first Macintosh computer. The commercial was a play off of George Orwell's novel, 1984. The commercial plot is basically all these humans in this assembly line acting like mindless drones following this large monitor. Then this fabulous 80s athlete woman comes in and throws this large hammer at the screen, putting an end to their hypnosis. The slogan reads at the end of the commercial, quote, why 1984 won't be like 1984. I just thought that was so trippy because 1984, it may not have been like 1984, but 2021 certainly is because your girl is getting very much tracked. (laughs) But according to Wall Street Journal, by the 1990s, companies sought bragging rights for making the best ad of the night and a creative bowl kicked off. So, Bianca, I'll want to know what your favorite commercial is this year, although I must say it was kind of slim pickings this year. Maybe perhaps for the best because, you know, these productions do take a lot of energy, a lot of work, a lot of money. And although there are really great things that come out of these productions, it is also Super Bowl in the pandemic. So I will say that some of the ones that stood out to me were the Uber Eats commercials. Those have been airing even before the Super Bowl, but I do think Mm -hmm. those ones are very clever. For the night of the Super Bowl, we did get Wayne's World. For me, it was just the Cardi of it all. Oh, yeah. No, she was so cute. I knew my girl had to show up at the Super Bowl for at least one point. (laughs) Well, last year, her was it last year when she did the Pepsi commercial? That one was good. With Steve Carell. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's cute. Yeah, I mean, I think to your point, Gianna, it's just weird. I don't think anyone is interested in the usual kind of capitalist bullshit that the Super Bowl spits out. You know, I think we deal with it as a kind of, in in my circle, I guess, we deal with it as a kind of cultural moment to get together and an excuse to just kind of have fun. But this year, amongst other things, it's just very strange. And I, I honestly really didn't think that you know, it's hard to hit on that note of hardship when you're selling a product in an ad on America's biggest night in television. So I understand that these ad agencies and, you know, companies are are striking a particular balance with that. But 
I was totally uninterested in the ads. I think, honestly, the Alexa ad with Michael B. Jordan was <sighs> very funny, though. That was probably my favorite one. That was and some I mean, 1984 shit. That's why I, I was, it was like, <laughs> oh my I god. It was, cute. it was funny. No, it but was. It's just scary. It's, it's like that episode of Black Mirror with John Hamm where he turns into the little Google home. Yeah. But... Well, on that note, my love, are we in the mood for a little art pop talk? In today's art pop talk, we're talking all about Valentine's Day, the history of the holiday, plus, of course, all of the visuals associated with it. Saints, Cupid, hearts, and candy. But Bianca, I want to know first, what are your plans for V-Day or Galentine's Day? And I'm also curious just to what you think about this holiday in general. Well, I have a few ideas for Valentine's Day. I haven't solidified them yet, but I'm really excited. And I was just telling my friend last weekend that I moved into my apartment a year ago So last February, I was in a whole new part of the country with no one to celebrate it with, but I did make sugar cookies for all of my coworkers, and I brought heart cookies with their names on it and art phrases on them into work, and it was fun. But this year, I'm really looking forward to spending it with someone special. Um, I love Valentine's Day. For someone who didn't really date in high school or... I've had some of the lamest Valentine's Days with some exes. I mean, truly just extremely uneventful. But I still really love the holiday. I've never really been one to get sad about the day if I wasn't with someone. I think for me, it's much more about appreciation of all the people in your life and telling people that you love them, friends, family. That's just always made me really happy. I think that we should just celebrate love more often without placing that pressure on people to kind of have a significant other but just telling people you love them is so nice and I really like it also I will say I love making Valentine's Day cards and cookies and treats I wish I could see you guys so I could give you guys a little you know baked good basket I think Mm -hmm. those are so fun but I also love a lame heart-shaped box of chocolates i'm a sucker for that holiday kitsch we're gonna talk about but gianna same to you do you and theban have plans do you have a specific kitschy thing from valentine's day that you love and also i was wondering what your thoughts on galentine's day are because i think i have a controversial opinion (laughs) Ooh, love a controversial opinion Um, you know, I have this free dinner thing that I have been needing to use for a while, which totally sounds like really lame, but I, I know that we're probably not going to go out on Valentine's day just because I feel as though it is going to be really busy and we're not really going out like that these days, but I do need to use this dinner. So we'll probably do that. Phoebin and I's four-year anniversary is coming up it's very close to valentine's day so we'll probably we mostly just end up celebrating our anniversary than we do specifically valentine's day Mm -hmm. i don't mind the holiday but for me gift giving is not my primary love language Mm -hmm. and gift giving is totally your love language bianca do you think i was just talking with andrew about this i don't know what mine is 
oh, it's, oh my God, are you kidding me? I talk about this all the time. I'm like, I gotta get this bitch a gift. Like, oh my God. <laughs> but I don't need to receive them. No. I okay. just like to get them. No, totally. Yeah. Um, but because like that is how you express love. Like that is your love language. And I think <laughs> this is going to sound like so self-centered. <laughs> I love receiving gifts. Like that's great. <laughs> you want to give me <laughs> Like, you want to give me a gift? Like, all right. Like, I will just express my affection in other ways. Words of affirmation. Words of affirmation. Thank you. I love it. No. um, But I think the ways in which we exchange gifts for this holiday, maybe just give me a little bit of anxiety. Because VDA think there is this kind of pressure to surprise you with something Mm, mm -hmm. Um, you know show up unexpectedly with flowers you know where if it's a different holiday like Christmas like you are both kind of getting each other gift I don't know but I think that's with that being said that goes with any holiday like you need to make it your own and talk about Mm -hmm. that with your significant other your family about how you want to exchange gifts Um, I think gift giving has just been on my mind lately because I had a really interesting conversation with mom actually the other day about it and how there's just so much I think why gift giving is not my love language is just because everybody handles that like so differently and I just Mm -hmm. don't want to put that pressure on like other people and I'm like I'm good either way you know what I mean Mm -hmm. but for Valentine's Day there's just this like different level of disappointment I think Um, (laughs) I don't know if I have any thoughts about Valentine's Day other than it just being a very gendered way of thinking about relationships. Why are there not a bunch of, I don't know, like men sulking around together? Why is there not this pressure for them to have a date on Valentine's? But with all that being said, if you want to get together with your girlfriends and, you know, have a girl gang get together you do you like that sounds amazing if you want to do that to seek comfort or if you want to do that to celebrate exactly I think the same thing I hate that there's a special day to celebrate love with your girlfriends like it needs to be isolated because oh if you don't have an actual date on Valentine's Day it's just sad that's not sad why don't you celebrate love with all the people in your life and I don't I it's yeah it's totally fine if people want to take that you know the way it was intended in you know how it stemmed out of parks and rec and it's very sweet and very endearing but i think now that is a very marketable experience to women in particular and that's what i really don't like about it i want to celebrate love with all the people and i don't feel like i need to isolate people who i care about based on gender it feels very strange to me to Mm -hmm. to do that Mm -hmm. but yeah yeah totally to get into it to preface this discussion many of these valentine's legends we'll be discussing stem from western cultures and this isn't to simplify or erase celebrations or depictions of love from around the globe but just to form a thread in how americans celebrate the holiday today And that in itself is probably a problematic oversimplification to say the least, but that's another episode we can just get into. 
To start things off, I'm taking us back to ancient Rome to tell you a little bit about the Roman festival Lupercalia. There's a lot of articles we found that do a pretty good job at creating a thread of the history of Valentine's Day. And many of them start with Lupercalia, which is a Roman festival celebrated on the 15th of February each year. We have documentations of the festival from the 3rd to 5th centuries BCE, and because of this timing at February, this is why some associate Valentine's Day as a descendant of the festival, but they might not be related at all. The festival is also marked by fertility rituals, which have also caused this related speculation. What is known about Lupercalia is that it started with an act of sacrifice. Priests of the god Lupercus, called the Luperci, would take off their clothes and slaughter goats in the Lupercal, the cave where city founders Romulus and Remus were nursed by a wolf. And that is essentially the origin story of Rome. The Luperci would then cut the goat's skin into strips and run around Rome striking women with the goat's skin. <laughs> a postdoctoral fellow at the Catholic University of Croatia, who has studied Lupercalia, believes that, quote, if you were struck by a Lupercus, one of the priests, it was considered that you would give birth to more children. I don't think it was a sadistic beating, it was a symbolic beating. They also cite mosaics and reliefs from the period that depicted instances of women who are sometimes stripped of clothing who accept these blows from the priests. Scholars believe the theory for whipping was that it served as an initiation, a quote, ritualized sexual play that marked a transition into adulthood. So apparently there's also a lot of speculation about these images. And right now, Gianna and I are looking at a mosaic that shows a figure being held and whipped. And it's hard to tell because of some destruction of the piece, if it's a man or a woman. But I don't know why I feel somewhat skeptical about this theory. Maybe it's because I think the sexual idea of a whip is a little too contemporary. It feels like a modern look at sex and play is being imposed onto this because it's a fertility festival. I don't know. I just I'm think... Not, I'm, not, I'm not thoroughly convinced just yet. There's just a lot about ancient Roman and Greek sexuality and sex is like a lot. All bets are off is all I'm saying mm -hmm. with that. So to sum it up in one image is just going to be extremely difficult. I mean... I also wanted to mention that apparently this festival is mentioned in Netflix's Chilling Adventures of Sabrina which I'm not personally super inclined to watch, but if anyone does watch it or has more information on that, please let me know. <laughs> I was reading something about the show, how it really over-sexualized a depiction of the festival. And I guess another thing is that in the festival, there's speculation that they might have had a type of pairing lottery system, which coupled people up. And in the show, I guess they depict that in the episode. But anyway, it's season two, episode three, if people are interested. Gianna is now going to talk about St. Valentine, which is the connection most accounted for in line of the holiday's history. 
And while some may believe that the Christian church decided to place St. Valentine's Feast Day in the middle of February in an effort to Christianize the celebration of Lupercalia, this theory really isn't that regarded. Although this may have happened in other instances during religious and cultural transition, this probably isn't the case for Valentine's Day. So we found a good little synopsis of the history of St. Valentine from none other than history.com, lol. But I did think it was really good, so I just thought I'd go ahead and read this little article for us today. On February 14th, around the year 270 CE, Valentine, a holy priest in Rome in the days of Emperor Claudius II, was executed. Under the rule of Claudius the Cruel, Rome was involved in many unpopular and bloody campaigns. The emperor had to maintain a strong army, but was having a difficult time getting soldiers to join his military leagues. Claudius believed that Roman men were unwilling to join the army because of their strong attachment to their wives and families. To get rid of the problem, Claudius banned all marriages and engagements in Rome. Valentine, realizing the injustice of the decree, defied Claudius and continued to perform marriages for young lovers in secret. When Valentine's actions were discovered, Claudius ordered that he be put to death. Valentine was arrested and dragged before the prefect of Rome, who condemned him to be beaten to death with clubs and to have his head cut off. Lovely. So this sentence was carried out on February 14th, supposedly. Legend also has it that while in jail, St. Valentine left a farewell note for the jailer's daughter, who had become his friend, and signed it, quote, from your Valentine. For this great service, Valentine was named a saint after his death. In truth, the exact origin and identity of St. Valentine are unclear. According to the Catholic Encyclopedia, at least three different St. Valentines, all of them martyrs, are mentioned in the early martyrologies under the date of 14th of February. One of the priests was in Rome, the other one was a bishop in Torini, Italy, and the third, St. Valentine, was a martyr in the Roman province of Africa. So gradually, February 14th became a date for exchanging love messages, as we know it, poems, and simple gifts such as flowers. The idea of Valentine's Day is a day for lovers is thought to originate with Geoffrey Chaucer's Parliament of Fowls, this is a poem written in the late 14th century and describes a group of birds which gather together in the spring specifically on this day to choose their mate for the year. It seems that this poem sparked a tradition and we actually have documentation of love letters calling their significant others their valentine as early as 1477. I was just laughing at myself earlier because the Parliament of Fowls is also published in the same manuscript that the Canterbury Tales were. So I was already thinking about tragic high school valograms, and then I just remembered that time in AP Lit where I had to recite the Canterbury Tales and just had a little laughing moment at myself, so that was fun. Gianna, you know, I was thinking about Paul Bettany playing him in A Knight's Tale, and every time I think of Geoffrey Chaucer, I do think of AP Lit, but I also think about him in a night's tale just being a goober i love that movie so much i know it's so good so we didn't find an image of saint valentine himself that i really liked the images 
are from medieval manuscripts and they show Valentine getting beheaded. Or I found another one from a 1400 French manuscript um, of the bishop from Torini as he kind of oversees this construction of the basilica. But the images that stood out to me the most were these visual descriptions of medieval love or lovers. One of the images I found that I thought were really actually beautiful was from the Codex Menes, a book of poetry made in Zurich around 1304 to 1305, where each image depicts a coinciding poem. The image that I found the most interesting was called the Lovebirds, where we have this Conrad embracing his lover. For, again, a medieval image, the interaction between the figures just seems so natural to me, and we even see slight facial expressions. We still have that forced and flattened perspective where the figures are very pushed to the very foreground of the image, and behind them are these really decorative blossoming red flowers that give us that very highly decorative uh, illuminated manuscript kind of vibe that we're used to seeing. And then we have the symbol of the bird landing on the man's helmet. That paired with blooming flowers is this visual indicator that this is in fact springtime, which corresponds with this visual history that we just talked about of St. Valentine and the history of when we decided to declare Valentine's Day, Valentine's Day in February. Yeah, this piece is really stunning. It's, I, I, I really like it. I'm really glad he found it. Yeah, they're just cute. They look so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Moving from medieval times back to ancient times and then forward into mannerist times, I wanted to think a little bit about Cupid and Gianna, when I think of Cupid, I'm not going to lie, I picture the sarcastic little Cupid in Santa Claus 2 at the Legendary Figures Council. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I found this Time article that will link called, Here's Why That Famous Embodiment of Desire is a Child. <laughs> and I just thought that was a really funny way to think about both that connection to traditional images of him and his story as a mythological figure, but also that very kitschy little bebe we see floating around the holiday aisle at the grocery store. Cupid is an interesting figure because he does seem to pop up quite a bit in various ways throughout our history. Essentially, Cupid is a Roman god, the equivalent to the Greek god Eros. In most accounts, he is the son of Venus or Aphrodite and was depicted or described as quite a little heartthrob, a very attractive young man, and he was a trickster of sorts who would play with the hearts of mortals to cause mayhem. In a choral ode from Sophocles' Antigone, Eros's power is described as very sinister. Quote, Invincible in battle, who falls upon men's property who you spend the night upon the soft cheeks of a girl and travel over the sea and through the huts of dwellers in the wild. None among the immortals can escape, nor any among mortal men, and he who has you is mad. In Hippolytus, a 5th century BCE play by Euripides, a line reads, quote, I pray that love, or eros, may never come to me, 
with murderous intent in rhythms measureless and wild. So we have some ancient depictions of him. He obviously comes up in literature as well as in these very beautiful sculptural renditions of him. But what I really had to talk about was a painting by Bronzino, and I just adore Bronzino. So this is an allegory with Venus and Cupid, sometimes also known as Venus, Cupid, Folly, and Time from 1545, which is located at the National Gallery in London. I've got to get to that museum. In this mannerist painting, and mannerism is also a kind of style known for these really interesting depictions and contortions of both bodies and placements of figures themselves. They have really interesting compositions. This work has been the subject of immense scholarly debate, and there are about a million and one interpretations, but at the end of the day, we probably don't know anything solid about our speculations. Bronzino was a court painter for the Medicis in Florence, and it could be that this was a gift from Cosimo de' Medici to the King of France. In this court, it is known that these patrons were exploratory in their art and culture, and by that I mean that they were fascinated by these visual puns, by jokes, by riddles within their high art or this kind of formal sort of education. What this painting shows is a wild mixture of characters, and really the only two that we can absolutely identify, which account for the different names in the piece, are Venus and Cupid. Venus is the largest figure in the work who holds a golden apple that was given to her by Paris. She is awkwardly sitting on her knees looking towards her side where her adolescent son, her son, Cupid is also very contorted so that he can kind of squat over to cup her breasts and kiss her. And Gianna, for the life of me, I try to find some information on this, but what we see in a close-up of their kiss that makes it even more incestually seductive is that Venus has her tongue just barely exposed enough to see so the addition of the tongue takes this kiss from maybe a mother-son exchange, if you ignore the fact that he's definitely grabbing her boob, to a, whoa, they're about to make out, full-on tongue, like, bachelor one-on-one -on -one situation. But I was trying to find more about this because I believe it's rumored that the tongue was taken out of the painting at one point because it was too seductive. And then it was restored later on, but I was having a really hard time finding more on that, and I really thought that that was a point of discussion in my Renaissance class, but I just couldn't remember. So if anyone can help me out, that would be great. Behind the mother-son makeout sesh, we have a lot of symbols about deception, about mischief, about pain versus pleasure, we also have a figure that appears to be screaming, which some believe represents syphilis, perhaps making a moral commentary on the cost of pleasure. So there's a lot of uncomfortable tension between these opposing themes and the figures who represent them as well. 
The reason I wanted to talk about this work is because one, it's a really cool and wild example from art history that's just fun to look at if you haven't seen it. I think you'll really get a kick out of it. But it's a really funny thing to think about these terms that we're that we're looking at today in our theme. This idea of lust and play that's perhaps a more mature take on Valentine's Day activities that kind of take place not at your childhood elementary school card exchange, you know. <laughs> Another depiction of Cupid that I love is a marble statue by Antonio Canova, Psyche revived by Cupid's kiss. So to kind of give you all a quick synopsis for this moment in Roman mythology, Venus demanded that Psyche bring back this flask from the under underworld and she forbade her to open it. Essentially, Psyche was looking for her lover, Cupid, and Venus wanted to put all these impossible obstacles in her way. And so she gave her this weird task of bringing back this flask to stop her from finding her son, Cupid. Psyche, being burdened by curiosity, opened the flask and breathed in this deadly fume and fell into a coma, basically. In the sculpture, we see the moment Cupid rushes to her side after this moment and touches her with his arrow to revive her. Moved by such devotion, the gods finally granted Cupid Psyche's hand. They gave her nectar and ambrosia, and this made her immortal. They then consecrated her goddess of the soul. I love this piece. We recognize Cupid by the wings and the plot line because the flask is actually in this visual narrative. There is a lot of movement and expression in their gestures. It feels very Romeo and Juliet-like, very tragic and beautiful. Once Psyche has become immortal, when you see other images of her, she'll be depicted with wings of a butterfly. Yeah, this piece is really beautiful. It's always been one of my favorites, and I just love the... I don't know what it is, but I love saying Cupid and Psyche. I just mm -hmm. think that's like a cute couple name. <laughs> yeah. There's something very just posed and strategic about this composition, but also mm -hmm. very effortless. It's just a really beautiful mm -hmm. um, sculpture. Yeah. Let's talk about Valentine's Day as we know it to be. Where did the kitsch come from and why do we use it and why do we love it? When putting on our art history thinking caps, our visual history tells us to think about these wild, romantic, tragic, and problematic love stories from not only how they were depicted in the Renaissance, but Ketch was really pushed to the forefront starting in neoclassical movement. This is where we get Cupid and Psyche, that statue we just talked about earlier, and even more so in the Rococo movement which spans all the way from the early to late 1700s. In the Rococo movement, we get these very luxurious, plentiful, humorous, scandalous images. One of the most iconic paintings from this era has a Cupid reference in it. And in this work, we see it actually appropriated over and over again because it's so famous. And this is Fragonard's The Swing. This iconic work depicts a fanciful woman flying on a swing in a lush garden, her pink dress strategically blooming as a young fancy man falls back into the bushes at the bottom left of the painting while looking up the woman's skirt. In the shadows at the right, an older man is pulling on the swing's ropes to pull her back and forth. 
Beneath her are two embracing cherubs, and at the left, kind of in the middle of the composition, we see Cupid standing on a pedestal, appearing as a statue, and he's holding his hands up to his lips, almost like he's saying, hush. The image was pretty scandalous for its time because of its very sexual nature. Another image from the period is Koipel's The Rape of Europa, where Zeus is still appearing in the form of a bull. He is even licking Europa's arm and is literally wearing a flower crown. So it can't get any more catchier than that. So I found this article called Kitsch Cupid, Rococo, and Romance that uses this painting as an example of Kitsch. But they make a really poignant statement that I think sums up this conversation of Kitsch in this genre of, of art really well. They say, quote, and so a tumult of sugar-coated, flowery, pink Rococo romance myths were poured into our collective art consciousness. Our modern concepts of mythologies are so intersectionally intertwined with these catch exaggerated renditions. I love this idea of comparing humor in Rococo to kitsch. Rococo art is so fun and so playful, and... I think sometimes we see it taken to this very drastic and elevated level and not that it doesn't take skill or talent and not that they're not beautiful but I do think that looking at it from or with that kitsch lens allows us to embrace the humor and the playfulness of it all and I really really love that um also the swing is such an iconic photo and you can find it in Disney's Frozen but without the man peering up her dress. So to finish out our show today I wanted to end with a view of those visual indicators of our current American traditions. This past weekend I actually just went to Hershey's Chocolate World in Hershey, Pennsylvania and they have this whole stand set up with all these different Valentine's Day candies and they have these cute little characters for the Hershey bar, the Reese's, and a Hershey kiss. And the kiss character is so cute and they have all these different kinds of kisses including Valentine's Day themed ones. The Hershey kiss was first introduced in 1907 and it is not known exactly how the kisses got their name but one theory suggests that they were actually named for the kissing sound that the chocolate made while being deposited on the manufacturing line. And unfortunately, that's not very romantic, but alas. It wasn't until 1962 that Hershey Kisses were first wrapped in red and green foil to celebrate Christmas. And today, to celebrate Valentine's Day, Kisses are wrapped in red foil. And when I was in Chocolate World, they had all different kinds of flavors of Valentine's Kisses. Looking at Valentine's Day cards, Gianna mentioned poems early on, but handmade Valentines became a common good of exchange in America in the early 1700s. In the 1840s, Esther A. Howland began selling the first mass-produced valentines in the country. Known as the Mother of Valentines, Howland made elaborate creations with real lace, ribbons, and colorful pictures known as scrap. Perhaps that's where we get scrapbooking? Interessant. Today, according to the Greeting Card Association, which I didn't know was a thing, 
An estimated 145 million Valentine's Day cards are sent each year, making Valentine's Day the second largest card-selling holiday of the year behind Christmas. And this is so interesting in thinking about the people who hand-make Valentine's cards and those and those ones you write to every person in your fifth grade class with a little piece of candy attached to it. And for me, that's also associated with pop culture references and these kind of young heartthrobs or pop stars that we see from movies and television. So I thought that was a strange lineage of the Valentine's Day card. And finally, the candy heart, which is a classic and a very distinct aesthetic, I think, as well. In 1866, Daniel Chase developed a machine that could press food dye letters onto candy lozenges that were made famous by his brother, New England Confectionery Company founder Oliver Chase. The candy gained popularity and soon became a favorite treat at weddings. In 1902, candy hearts evolved into the ones we know today and continued to be made every year. Around 8 billion or 100,000 pounds of candy hearts are made, and throughout the entire season, they almost always get sold out within six weeks. To this day, they are the best-selling Valentine's Day candy. And what I love about all three of these things is that they have their own distinct style and representation. I love that in Valentine's Day cards, we think about maybe that old era Victorian lace and that pastel coloring of candy hearts and They all fit into this very niche holiday kitsch that is so commercialized and I think also referenced a lot in visual culture, not just in ads, but in art and film as well. There was also a New Yorker article where they hired photographers to document these kitschy products and they're taken from this capitalist sensation to a comment and documentation of that intake that I also just thought was really interesting. So I I like Valentine's Kitsch. I think it's really cute. The whole time I'm just thinking of Jim Gaffigan uh, eating the chocolate when this one tastes like toothpaste. <laughs> Sometimes they do taste like toothpaste and you just got to go with the flow. Yeah, worth it. Well, Gianna, I think that about wraps it up for today. What do you say? I say I like it. I love it. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Well, we love you, little Art Pop Tarts. Art Pop Candy Hearts. That would be cute. I tried to... That's cute. I was trying to come up with, like, a cute little, like, will you be my, like, pop and tart? (laughs) Like, I... I was trying to be like so witty. I couldn't think of anything, but that was cute. That's cute. (laughs) Well, everyone, we hope that you have a lovely Valentine's Day, no matter who you're celebrating with. And don't forget, you can follow us across all these different kinds of social media. If you are an Apple listener, go ahead and rate us. Give us a little review on Apple Podcasts. And with that, I think we'll talk to you on Tuesday. Bye, everyone. Bye. Art Pop Talks production assistant is Audrey Kaminsky. Music and sounds by Josh Turner. Photography is by Adrian Turner. And our graphic designer is Sid Hammond.